Welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. I am your host, Juan Llamas Rodriguez. Today we are discussing animation aesthetics and indigenous new media. Our guest is Dr. Shanet Romero. She's an associate professor of English and Native American Studies at the University of Georgia. She has published essays on literature and film in journals such as American Indian Quarterly, Studies in American Indian Literatures, African American Review, among others. She's currently completing a book that explores North American indigenous filmmakers' growing appropriation of popular Hollywood genres, especially science fiction, horror, animation, westerns, and sports movies. Jeanette, welcome to the Global Media Cultures Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I want to start by asking you about your research interests. Um, why do these topics interest you, and why are they an important area for us to study? So I work on indigenous North American film and indigenous film right now is going through a a resurgence and there's been a lot of focus since the late 90s on documentaries and on feature length dramas that are set on reservations. And while those are really important areas of study and critical interest and media interest, they kind of give a false impression that that's what all of indigenous North American cinema looks like. And instead, um, I'm really fascinated by this proliferation of genre films, um, especially native appropriations of genre films that are really full of negative stereotypes about natives, like um, horror films with the Indian burial grounds or animation with images like Pocahontas or the, you know, the dopey red engine. And so I'm kind of fascinated by um, native appropriations of genre films. And that's what got me interested in it, that I don't see a lot of focus on this wider area. Right, right. And so the article we're discussing today is very much in line, in line with this, right? It's thinking about indigenous appropriations of animation. Right. Um, so today we're discussing your article Toward an Indigenous Feminine Animation Aesthetic, which was published in Studies in American Indian Literatures in 2017. Um, could you give us a brief history of this particular essay? So kind of like when you began working on it, how did the project originate and how did the ideas change in the process of, of research and of writing? Absolutely. So this project began when I was writing my animation chapter for um, my book in progress on um, indigenous North American genre films. And so when I started working on the animation chapter, I noticed that there were a lot of differences, stylistic and formal differences between animations created by North American indigenous male animators and indigenous female animators. And I became really interested in why that difference exists, where it comes from, and particularly why indigenous women animators choose to kind of reject mainstream Hollywood's smooth, sleek um, animations for kind of jerky, discontinuous, awkward um, animations, experimental animations that kind of characterizes um, a lot of indigenous North American women's animation. Right. So, I mean, central to this argument is 
thinking about the technical and the aesthetic affordances of animation, right? And you, you started to mention this um, in relation to Pocahontas, but could you talk a little bit more about how animation has sort of historically been used to perpetuate these stereotypes and to like natural naturalize imperialism um, in some ways? Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that um, kind of differentiates indigenous women's animation is that it rejects that mainstream dominant animation style that's characterized by Walt Disney Studios or Warner Brothers. Those studios that are incredibly influential in the medium here in the United States, they kind of, their style is very sleek. It it, um, almost makes it seem as if they are just neutrally representing reality, when in fact, they're portraying a certain version of settler reality, where Native women are portrayed as objects who exist solely uh, for the romantic or political interests of settler culture. And a lot of Native women's animation wants to reject that and to say, hey, these cartoons are portraying colonialism as if it's like a romantic fantasy or adventure or as if it's inevitable. And instead they want to, and and that Native women and Native homelands are portrayed as a backdrop in that kind of colonial story. Indigenous women's animation is decolonial. It rejects that colonial gaze by trying to show, hey, what are the other things outside of that frame? What are the other kinds of stories that exist where Native women have their own agency, where there are subjects that watch settler culture and make active decisions about settler culture instead of just being tools or objects to be used by them? Right, right. And it's, it's interesting once we start sort of peeling off of those, um, let's say, ideologies of the sort of sleek animation, right? Because for so long, there there was this distinction between the sort of realism of live action film versus the sort of fantastical world of animation. Um, and we kept thinking that the, the sort of conservatism of realism is more tied to live action representations. But as you point out, there's a lot that the sleek sort of animation can do to naturalize colonialism to naturalize all of these projects by making it by sort of wrapping it into a romanticized idea. Yes, even just portraying land in the Americas as wide open and empty for Bugs Bunny to 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 run through or the roadrunner to run through. Even that by not portraying indigenous people who have existed for millennia on that land that's contributing to imperialism. And animation is so powerful because so many people watch it when they're young. Here in the United States, it is geared towards children's programming. And so they are adopting a particular ideological point of view when they're young and they're holding on to that. Often viewers are often holding on to that unconsciously, not really realizing that these cartoons they watched as kids we're actually trying to prompt them to adopt certain worldviews. Right, right. So if on the one hand, uh, this is a medium that is very helpful for, or has been mobilized for these kinds of imperialistic naturalization kind of projects, um, why have you found that it is also a sort of very apt medium or a very fruitful medium for um, women artists, indigenous artists to sort of decolonize decolonialize um, or push back on on these ideals? 
Native women, historically, one of their roles was to create arts and crafts to help people negotiate their relationships to each other and to negotiate their relationships with the natural world and the cosmos. And they're used to be creating um, arts that draw upon, that are multimedia, that draw upon oral storytelling traditions simultaneous with visual design elements from indigenous cultures. And so they're already historically have been using our, our multimedia craft workers. And so animation with its ability to draw upon visuals and um, storytelling components, oral and oral storytelling components. It's a natural medium um, or it, it, it becomes kind of an ideal medium to adopt some of the traditions that indigenous women have historically been using in the Americas. Right, right. I think there's a great moment where you quote um, Cherokee scholar Angela Haas, right, with uh, saying that, you know, the first known skilled multimedia workers and intellectuals in the Americas were indigenous peoples, right? Um, the sort of notion that we have about um, what multimedia is, is very, again, very sort of Western uh, settler focus, which is digital media, turn of the 21st century. Uh, but as you point out, there is this longer tradition of especially indigenous women learning to bring together different types of media to to create these um, representations, right, or these projects, so so animation sort of falls in that that lineage as well, right? Absolutely, it draws upon a network of communications in the way that hypertext and multimedia. Um, by settler cultures has been using prior to this. They might not have used wires, but they used other forms of technology. So thinking about the affordances of animation as it is being used now, um, I think one of the things you point out in the, in the different artists that you're looking at is they rely a lot on two-dimensional animation, right? Uh, which is notable, especially in the current moment where 3G, uh, 3D CGI kind of animation has become so so popular and so prevalent, right? Um, so what do you see are some of the um, aesthetic decisions and some of the critiques that indigenous women are able to do or why, would they, why do they turn to two-dimensional animation in their work? I think it's fascinating. Um, indigenous women's animation um, can often draw upon multiple forms of animation. So you'll often see uh, three-dimensional CGI animation along analog, along two-dimensional images. And so they're kind of drawing upon a lot of traditions and doing it very explicitly and openly to call attention to their constructedness. And so one of the things there, there is a preference for two-dimensional animation um, in a lot of indigenous North American women's animation. And one of the things that it does is um, literally and metaphorically deflate in, uh, stereotypes, cinema stereotypes about indigenous people. So they'll show a cinema stereotype and then flatten and deflate it um, so that it, it exposes it as a cardboard cutout fantasy of settler culture versus a three-dimensional reality. And they, they do a lot of self-conscious playing with um, different animation styles and with different materials to call attention to the constructed quality of all animation, including their own, 
to try to prompt viewers to recognize that animation is not a neutral medium, that it's constructed by individual people and reflects individual um, or very specific ideological viewpoints. And so they formally and stylistically call attention to that constructed quality um, and kind of really expose some of the assumptions viewers might have about animation as just being lighthearted, as just being innocuous, as being a neutral, fun medium. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. And I think you you mentioned this too in the article that historically animation has always been a sort of self-reflexive medium, right? We can go back to like duck amok um, and the bringing in the actual cartoon cartoon um, animator into the cartoon itself. Um, so, but these are not necessarily always used for critique. It might just be a sort of aesthetic decision to draw attention to, to the creation of the medium. Um, but how do the, how do the different artists that you're looking at mobilize self-reflexivity um, for particular like political didactic aims? Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things they do is, kind of um, elicit a particular response in their, in their viewers. They present it a particular issue and it draws our assumptions, oh no, this indigenous woman is in danger of being a victim, that they, they then immediately undercut. And so they get us to laugh at the assumptions that many of us bring about um, what cartoons do, how indigenous women are portrayed in cartoons, and get us to uh, laugh at some of the uh, ridiculous assumptions that we have that we might not even be aware of. One of the other techniques they do is that they often, uh, one of the other strategies they use is that they often show natives consuming other media, um, especially um, mainstream media, panoramas, westerns, uh, other kinds of cartoons, and they expose the stereotypes within that media. And so we watch a Native person watch uh, stereotypes about Native people, and that juxtaposition, the reason that's so different than those mainstream cinematic stereotypes, becomes exposed. And maybe perhaps a third strategy I'll mention is that um, it comes, it's a very old common strategy in animation. In the very first animated film, Emil Cole's 1908 Phantasmagoria, he depicts a hand drawing a figure that then becomes able to move on its own, seemingly by magic, and it's a male hand. And in indigenous um, women's animation, they replace that male drawing hand with a female hand who is um, often sewing or doing beadwork, um, who is using indigenous domestic arts and crafts. Um, and by replacing that, they showed a different gendered lens. They show indigenous women being very, very aware of the tradition that they're entering. And the argument that they implicitly seems to be making is, hey, we've been creating arcs for a long time, too, that tell stories about our world, um, multimedia stories about our world. And so it's both fun and cheeky, but also very self-conscious and political. Right, right. And it goes back to your earlier point, right, too, about um, Indigenous artists and Indigenous women in particular always having been multimedia artists, right? Uh, even before we, we were able to think to 
talk about in those terms um, as well. And then the inclusion of uh, the female hands in the animation as a sort of very literal, this is uh, uh, a female artist who is doing this work, um, pointing to that. I think one of the, the strategies that I find really fascinating that you just mentioned is the um, having indigenous characters within the shorts watch the negative representations of themselves, right? It's sort of, it's both the self-reflexivity in the narrative, um, but also self-reflexivity for the audience too, right? Of think about what it is that you're watching and how that um, influences or impacts how you think about the characters. Um, and well. also how you've been thinking about native people. Do you imagine native people as objects that you watch through an ethnographic documentary? or Bugs Bunny dressing up as a Native person. Um, how are we imagining um, and how are we figuring Native people? And then when you see Native people watching those stereotypes of themselves, you're forced to, instead of thinking about Native peoples as objects, they become subjects who are capable of viewing as well. And they're capable of viewing you and creating narratives and imaginations about you, the viewer. And that um, unsettles a lot of the um, media stereotypes that people might have about Natives. Right, right. And it settles a lot of the, like, the classical way of thinking about visuality, which is we, the audience, are the subjects and the uh, the people that we are watching will always be objects. But in this case, it's, it's in some ways pushing at that uh, dichotomy or that very strict sort of division too. Absolutely. And getting us to laugh at ourselves, right? What assumptions did we have and how long have we held them? If we've held them since we saw Pocahontas or Peter Pan when we were little, perhaps it's time to revisit some of those assumptions. Right. In particular, when you're talking about I Am But a Little Woman, you mentioned that in your reading of it, um, you think it is privileging place and land over time. Um, can you talk to us about a little bit more about how it's doing that and why it's significant? And in particular, I, I would say that I was uh, particularly um, struck by that because, I mean, film is a chronological medium, right? So we sort of watch in order. So I'm interested in how how you see the short uh, privileging place and land over time, even through a medium that is in some ways restricted to, to being chronologically um, experienced. It's fascinating how much music and editing can make a film or piece of multimedia art seem either faster or slower than it is in chronological time. If you have slow protracted images like you have in I Am But A Little Woman, where all we see is land and we just continue to watch it. Um, and the only soundtrack we have are animal noises or noises of a river. It forces the viewer to focus on the land, not as backdrop, but as something that might be important, important enough that a fourth of the film is spent looking at this uh, repeated image. Um, right. Because many of these animations are experimental and they can be really difficult to understand, they require the audience to spend a lot of time thinking about them. Even after the film finishes, you find yourself as a viewer trying to understand or make sense of that um, experimental film that you've just finished watching. For example, in the case of Amanda Strong's animations, um, I'm thinking about... Uh, 
Bidadaban, um, When the Dawn Comes, uh, which is a stop motion puppet animation. She reveals that there are spirits in the land since time immemorial, and readers have to, or viewers rather, have to understand how the ghosts of wolves or caribou are watching us in the contemporary moment and that they can interact with us. She also has a shapeshifter um, who uses a rock-like device to text. And so viewers have to put in all of this time and effort to understand these images and understand this narrative. Um, and that makes these films seem longer than they actually are. And to last longer, even after you finish watching it, you've hit pause or shut down um, the device you're viewing it on, you find yourself um, thinking about the images and the narrative that you've watched. And so they protract time in certain ways um, and force you to think about the land in ways that you might not. If you were watching a mainstream animation, land is often the backdrop. Um, it's not a character in the story. It can't come to life and suddenly start texting. Right, right. And because so much of, especially mainstream, um, low-budget animation is about the static background and action is, is the thing that is being uh, that is driving the narrative, right? Um, and the ability to recycle backgrounds depends on the fact that we're not going to focus on them. We are focusing on the character moving and that's the only, literally the only animation in the film that we're interested in. Um, so a lot of what these shorts are doing is doing the exact opposite, right? Is is the the anima of animation is bringing to life the, the setting um, rather than than moving action as, as the driving force, right? Or revealing that the setting was always alive to begin with, even yeah. if settler culture doesn't acknowledge that it's alive. I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating about mainstream film grammar is that so much of what makes sense in a film comes through continuity editing. And mm -hmm. a lot of that comes from D.W. Griffith's Birth of a Nation, this yep. first major feature film where we have things like cross-cutting, where we have shot, um, reaction shot kind of um, movements. And that that's so heavily tied in that film with the imperial gaze. And in that film in particular, it's about the rise of the Ku Klux Klan. And so it would be wrong to imagine that all of standard film grammar, or classic Hollywood film grammar, that a lot of animation uses, it would be wrong to think that those are neutral, that all of that continuity editing, all of those approaches to how we look, that there is not imperialism encoded within it. And so indigenous women's animation tries to give different shots and different sounds and to make us aware that we're expecting um, particular kinds of um, cuts, uh, establishing shots where land is simply the backdrop, where instead of an image of land that we expect to be simply an establishing background shot, that is the film. Um, and, and I think it's awesome to confront viewers uh, with um, the assumptions we have that are encoded within the very form and style that we've become so comfortable with. Right, right. Yeah, it's, it's great that you mentioned um, Birth of a Nation because it, it got me thinking about uh, Nicholas Salmon's work, uh, Birth of an Industry, where he's also trying to make the argument of so much early animation and the way characters were portrayed was borrowing um, the 
the practice of minstrelsy, right? Um, and in that in that sense, a lot of the practices that we still have about how characters are flexible or move in mainstream animation um, come from that genealogy um, of sort of the the pliable black body um, in that sense too. Absolutely. And and it's in, even if we're not necessarily tying the one to one to like this was the the shot reverse shot or the continuity editing that. Um, Griffith use and now we're still using today. It's uh, as the examples that you point out. It's is makes it so much more explicit that there is no apolitical sort of aesthetic decision, right? It, there are implicit ideologies in treating the land as simply an establishing shot, and um, that it just lets us know where we are and we can move on because that's not what matters. But rather, these indigenous artists pushing us saying it actually matters where you are and it matters that you know the place. Um, the history of it and and all of those things rather than just discarding them. Absolutely. And there are real world consequences to imagining indigenous homelands as simply backdrop for settler stories or to imagining indigenous women as simply tools um, or objects to be gazed upon or used as settler culture would see fit. Um, you know, one of the things that I think is really important to remember is that Native women are two and a half times more likely to be raped and sexually assaulted than women from other communities. And that Native women are 10 times more likely to be murdered. There are real world consequences in how we portray Native women because it it affects how people imagine them um, and their role in our culture. If they're simply objects, they can be used and discarded. For so often when it comes to animation, we think that these are lighthearted, neutral, innocuous images, but they actually have real world consequences. But I'm thinking particularly about interviews that the serial killers caught on the U.S.-Canadian border, they've said, um, who have targeted um, one in particular, Robert um, Pickens, Pickton. He killed 49 Aboriginal women. And when asked about it, he said, well, these are just squaws. They're meant to be used. So there are real world consequences to these cinema stereotypes about Indigenous women. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. Related, uh, following on the the sort of technical or aesthetic decisions too, um, so we can think about the the portrayal of the land and the visual aspects of that and uh, the question of chronology or continuity editing as well. Um, but you also point out to the use of sound as being very particularly interesting in how um, indigenous artists mobilize not only language, but instruments and sound effects in sort of creative ways. Um, could you talk a little bit more about that and what you see as the, the sort of interesting creative aspects of that? Absolutely. So um, for oral cultures, sound is incredibly important, as you can imagine. And um, that links up with the history of sound recording in the United States. So it emerged simultaneously with imperialism in the 19th century. U.S. government and the U.S. military um, were going to war against Indian nations in the 19th century. And they justified their rhetoric based on ideas about progress that imagined that Native peoples were just 
magically vanishing and dying off. And so ethnographers and academics rush to fill phonographs with the sounds of these dying nations and dying cultures. And so while they might have imagined themselves as neutral, a neutral medium, in fact, they helped to perpetuate the imperial idea that these cultures were dying off. And so from its earliest origin, sound recording was very political. So one of the things that Native women's use of sound does um, is to kind of collapse this false distinction between the private and the political or the domestic or the public or um, the government and media. And um, they're enlisting those for their own purposes, saying that, hey, Native cultures have in fact not died off. Um, that natives aren't just simply victims whose stories you have to record uh, while they're in the process of just inevitably passing away. Um, that in fact, they are thinking peoples with living cultures who have the agency to also represent themselves through the media in a more accurate way than historically they have been represented in sound media. Right, right. And the, that history of um, audio recording ties into, as you point out, to sort of colonial legacies of capturing the other, right? It's uh, the assumption that indigenous cultures are dying and that we will save them. We, the sort of settlers coming in, will save them by capturing their voices and in some way saving that language and that culture um, has all sorts of sort of colonial baggage to it um, as well. Yeah, and it's also tied to this idea that we see in documentary a lot, but that some animations play with as well. The ethnographer who has the right to learn everything, to learn and record everything there is to know about an indigenous culture. They're going to preserve it um, better than the indigenous peoples would preserve their own cultures, and they'll decide what's the most important aspect to preserve. And so indigenous women's animation explodes that, um, explodes that ethnographic gaze and that ethnographic voice that you see in some of these early sound recordings and uh, early panoramas in the 19th century. And exploding the whole idea of preservation as specifically medium tied, right? Like preservation through oral cultures is about continuing that story. Uh, so using media as a form of transmission uh, or representation or reproduction rather than a storage medium also has different implications there as well. Well, yeah, the idea of these ethnographic recordings is that it's static. It's not dynamic. And you as listener are privileged to, to hear everything that you want to hear or that the ethnographer decides is important to hear. Whereas indigenous women's multimedia and their animations are interactive. They require quite a lot from their viewers where you have to really work to understand how this sound that seems really discontinuous from the image or the design that's on the screen, how those two relate. And so it's a really radically different approach to sound. Um, there's the passive listening or there's the active um, interaction, multimedia interaction that a lot of indigenous animation demands of its viewers. Right, right. And to your earlier point about time, even though I think all of the ones you analyze here are shorts, right? Consider shorts in the sort of schema of what we think of a feature film uh, versus a short, but they're, the, the strategies that they are using to get us to contemplate the, the land, to think, to think through what the animation is doing, 
um, expands that time, right? So if even if um, in the sort of metric that we have for what time is, it's still only thirty minutes or twenty five minutes. Um, the it the experience of it is meant to be feel longer because you're working through um, interactively the the process of of learning what it is that the animation is doing. Absolutely, and the the films themselves are nonlinear. They're drawing upon really old oral and visual traditions and showing how they can be used and deployed in very contemporary digital animation. And it rewards multiple viewings too. Absolutely. So in, in throughout the article, you are talking about um, indigenous women animation. Um, And so, but you, you mentioned at the beginning that these are artists from different indigenous nations um, and also different like current um, settler colonial states. So can you talk a little bit about how w- the decision to group them all together um, or talk about them all in the same article? Um, what is the, the sort of critical purchase in examining an indigenous aesthetic by comparing all of these different works from, from different places? Absolutely. So um, I focus primarily on or almost entirely on indigenous North American cinema. And while I do explore um, some animation in Mexico, and there's fascinating animation being done by 68 um, voices there, um, predominantly I focus on the United States and Canada. And while those are two different nation states, the U.S. and Canada um, their laws historically interplayed off of each other. So the U.S. would enact a law and Canada would enact a very similar law the next year and vice versa. And so one of the things that links um, Indigenous women who are from all different um, tribes is their experiences under nation state settler governments um, that that are quite similar that position indigenous um, tribes in in very similar ways. And so a lot of the animators I talk about would identify first from a particular clan and then from a particular tribe. They, however, see the political usefulness of making alliances with other indigenous tribal people that have experienced similar um, negative Uh, repercussions of these nation states, settlers' laws. Also, one of the things that's fascinating is that um, in contemporary times, there are grants, there are prizes, there are film festivals, there are workshops that are geared specifically to Native American, Indigenous, First Nations, Aboriginal creators. And so financially, it is very strategic for them to adopt, even if temporarily, a a wider um, indigenous North American identity, um, one of these wider labels. And then they meet each other at these workshops and these film festivals, um, and they're influencing each other's work. So we start to see overlapping aesthetics that are joining indigenous women's creations even if the women are from different tribes and there will be differences specific um, in many of them to that specific woman's tribe, we start to see some similar patterns emerge in the style and the form, even if some of the designs are tribally specific. Um, And so it's kind of a fascinating um, 
aesthetic that is emerging that links them um, for political, financial, um, strategic um, purposes. Right, right. Yeah, it's fascinating. Um, last year, I was talking to Carmen Cray, mm-hmm. um, and she mentioned this institutional aspect, which I didn't know about before, and, and it, it sounds fascinating, the sort of the strategic positioning of oneself in relation to the institution, right, that is perhaps tied to the government that historically has been um, um, been negative, have negative effects on, on the indigenous peoples. And now as a sort of form to try and redress that, there are all these grants um, and, and movements. And it's about knowing how to speak to those institutions that may not have done the work yet to know the differences between different indigenous groups, uh, but then using those resources in order to be able to tell those stories about uh, different indigenous experiences, right? Absolutely. And then along with those institutional um, associated with um, federal nation state grants, in addition to those kinds of institutions, there's institutions like Imaginative, which is the largest international um, indigenous film festival. And there, there are links like the Embargo Collective 1 and 2, Denise Goulet, who was the artistic director for many years. She invited indigenous women to participate in these groups where they pushed each other to innovate creatively and to move uh, indigenous cinema further artistically, creatively, formally, stylistically. And so some of those um, aesthetic and creative changes are being prompted not just from external forces, but also um, indigenous women encouraging each other um, to develop their own thinking um, and expanding the field. And I think that is incredibly exciting. I'm fascinated that you mentioned the 68 Voices project from Mexico because I'm somewhat familiar with it and I, I find it really fascinating too. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what you find interesting in, in that project? I think 68 Voices is powerful for so many different reasons. Um, and it's patterned or it's, the idea is that it, there is an effort to create 68 different animations each one told in one of the indigenous languages that continue to exist in Mexico. And that I find to be incredibly powerful. And then within those different indigenous languages and those different tribes that speak those languages, there's an effort to tell the story from that particular tribal point of view. And so it has led to fascinating films, creatively, narratively, um, stylistically, formally, um, experimental, and um, and just great, uh, exciting um, animations that are really pushing the boundaries. I think that what's going on with 68 Voices is somewhat different than what's happening in the United States and Canada. And I think that has a lot to do with funding, is being influenced by a different set of um, animations and different kinds of creators. And so it, it looks different um, mm-hmm. than, than the ones being created in the United States and um, Canada, though there are there is still one of the things I've noticed in 68 Voices is there there is still um, often a, a focus on 
domestic arts and crafts. There's a lot of people sewing. There's a lot of tapestry. Um, there's a lot of experimental animation and playing around with sound. So there's some overlaps, but it doesn't seem quite as coherent as some of the animations I talk about in my article. Right, right. So even though it's a, a it's a, the same project, quote unquote, in terms of like where the funding is coming and how it's being presented, it's going aesthetically in very different directions um, as well. And and to your earlier point, I think one of the things that's fascinating about the project is even though on the at first glance or on the surface it seems like the earlier project of, of preserving the language, right? Like we're going to create a short about this specific indigenous language as a way of like saving it or showing it to people. But in reality, that's just the, the launching pad for telling a specific indigenous story and all of these creative aesthetic ways, right? So it's less about the sort of storage version of just sticking the language in, in one animation and hoping it survives. And it's more about sort of the reproduction part of it, of telling this story and moving it forward. Absolutely. And, you know, it would be wrong to imagine that um, all of the indigenous language use that happens in um, indigenous women's animation um, from from the place we would now call the United States or Canada, it would be wrong to imagine that there isn't also a desire to preserve and transmit indigenous languages as well. Like that is a component. Right. Um, so you mentioned earlier that this article was um, part of the prep work for the chapter in your book. Um, so how have you built on it since its publication? Um, how does it fit into the larger book project now? Um, where is it? Where is the project now? That's a great question. Um, and so I'm still in, in progress. My manuscript, my book um, on in indigenous North American genre films is still in progress. And, and so one of the things that's been fascinating that I've noticed is that while earlier, when this article first came out in 2017, and it was written in 2015 and 2016, mm. There was a more dramatic difference between animation created by Indigenous men and animation created by Indigenous women. Since then, I think uh, I've begun to see more Indigenous male animators creating experimental animation, playing around with flat design more, playing around with um, different kinds of textures and, and fabrics. Um, one of the, the most fascinating films, or perhaps the most fascinating film I saw last year in 2020, um, was by an Inuit um, animator named Glenn Gear. And his brightly colored, non-continuous um, experimental animations require the audience to think um, long and hard. And it, it, it's um, one of his films, uh, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, Katinagak. It has such a catchy soundtrack. Um, it's, it's Inuit throat singing. So it draws upon Inuit women's um, oral tradition, oral tradition. Um, but it is the, the song used is so catchy that you find yourself singing it for days after you finish <laughs> watching the film. Um, 
And you work so hard to try to understand this experimental film uh, that it's it's a more protracted viewing, similar to the kinds of things that we see in Inuit women's animation more typically. And so I think we're starting to see um, an increase in experiment experimental films. There's a Haida filmmaker, Christopher Ochter, um, his Mountain of Ghana um, animation has come out and and it starts with smooth, sleek, three-dimensional CGI animation. And then suddenly there is a female mouse spirit who starts knitting. And when she knits, it tells this um, traditional Haida story that then the um, contemporary individual who we watch texting in this sleek three-dimensional CGI in the opening scene, we watch him interacting with this um, this sewn tapestry. And so I think we're starting to see more experimental animation coming from Indigenous men. I think that's incredibly exciting. It complicates my uh, book chapter, but in an awesome way. Mm-hmm. Um, it, there is something incredibly fun about working on very, very contemporary animation because it's constantly coming out um, and you have to rethink um, your your uh, ideas about things. But I think that's great because one of the things that it does is it shows us that indigenous cultures and di- indigenous creators are living, they're dynamic. They're constantly working, they're constantly adapting, and they're constantly showing us the ways in which tribal traditions continue to stay relevant for the contemporary moment. And I think that that is incredibly exciting. So I've had to kind of shift and not have, um, not see such a stark contrast, gendered contrast in the animation, but I think that's that's pretty cool as well. So you mentioned the like new... um new work from these indigenous male artists, but are there any other recent developments um, either in the world or in um, artistic practice that have also shifted or added to, to the ideas that you were talking about in 2015 and 2016? One of the things that will be interesting is to consider how indigenous creators make meaning, make sense, negotiate COVID-19. Um, COVID-19 has devastated a lot of communities, especially indigenous communities in the Americas. And um, it, indigenous peoples have always used their arts to negotiate their relationship to the world, to negotiate their histories, to what's happening um, to themselves and their communities. And I think, um, I imagine that in a few years, we will see some compelling indigenous cinema um, that wrestles with the heartbreak and also the strength and resilience that we see in tribal communities' relationship to COVID-19. One of the things that um, did not surprise me, but seemed to surprise mainstream um, newspapers, was that when it came to tribal communities in Canada and in the United States, they privileged um, giving the vaccine to people who were fluent in the indigenous languages. That was really important to them to make sure to preserve um, the lives um, and of their indigenous language speakers. And while 
you know, some reporters were really surprised and some of my students were really surprised by that. I wasn't. That is an ongoing commitment in tribal communities. It's one that's reflected in a lot of indigenous cinema and a lot of indigenous animation. And so I will not be surprised um, to see a lot of works really wrestle with um, COVID-19's impact on their communities. Perhaps I'll just mention that one of the things that characterizes a lot of Indigenous animation by men and women is that frequently it's distributed for free online. Mm -hmm. Um, And some of that is the product of their funding sources. If they were funded by the National Film Board of Canada, if they were funded by Sundance or Disney. So, So part of that distribution has to do with their funding, but part of it is also to um, increase interest in indigenous stories and in indigenous cultures. And it's a very, um, a very specific and strategic effort to tell their viewers, whether they're indigenous or not, whether they're from their specific tribe or not, to tell them indigenous stories, to tell them about indigenous cultures and to show how fun and cool indigenous cultures are and to draw draw their interest, not only in these particular stories, but in the, the people uh, whose stories they reflect. It's an attempt to, to gain um, interest and engagement in Native peoples, Native cultures, and in the ways that imperialism continues to affect Native lives and Native communities. And so these are free. They're available online. I strongly encourage everyone to view as many as you can, but also at the same time to be aware that there are drawbacks in releasing your material that you spent two years working on, that there are drawbacks into releasing that for free um, online. Um, And so because of the financial repercussions, it's expensive and time consuming to create film and expensive and time consuming to create animation. So the very fact that they are widely distributed, often for free online, indicates just how important these creators feel that their work gets widely disseminated. Right, right, for sure. Jeanette, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. This episode of the Global Media Cultures podcast was produced by me and edited by Alan Yu, and closing credits music by Cloudmouth. This project is supported in part by the School of Arts, Technology, and Emerging Communication at the University of Texas at Dallas. The Global Media Cultures podcast introduces media scholarship about the world to the world. I'm Juan Yamas Rodriguez. Thank you for listening.